Welcome to the Failsafe, a podcast about writing and failure. On this episode of the Failsafe, I talk with Alexander Chi during the 2017 Iowa City Book Festival in Iowa City. Alexander Chi is the author of the novels Edinburgh and The Queen of the Night and the essay collection How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. He is a contributing editor at The New Republic and an editor-at-large at VQR. His essays and stories have appeared in the New York Times Book Review, T Magazine, Tin House, Slate, Guernica, and Out, among others. He is winner of the 2003 Whiting Award, a 2004 NEA Fellowship in Prose, and a 2010 MCCA Fellowship, as well as residency fellowships from the McDowell Colony, the VCCA, and Amtrak. He is an associate professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. The Failsafe is produced by Draft, the Journal of Process in the Iowa Writers' House. Draft publishes first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about the creative process. Find them online at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writers' House is a community literary organization that provides education, resources, and opportunities to writers, extending the Iowa literary legacy to all. The house offers workshops, residencies, as well as literary-themed rooms in a bookish boutique B&B. Listeners of The Failsafe are invited to stay where the authors stay and receive a 10% discount on their visits to the City of Literature. Visit iowawritershouse.com. And last but not least, special thanks to the Iowa Arts Council for their support, which helps make this podcast possible. Coming up... How do you keep going when the novel you're working on takes you 15 years to write? How to wrangle a mountain of research? And the brilliant journaling system Chi designed to keep him going day in and day out. All this and more right now. I'm Rachel Yoder, and this is The Failsafe. So yeah, there's lots to love about Alexander Chi, and it's it's sort of becoming a rite of passage um, here in Iowa City for those who win the Paul Engel Prize. We just fly you into town, you immediately come, your first gauntlet you much, must pass as you just come straight to Prairie Lights, you talk about failure. You just you just come face to face with that. And then there are other challenges throughout, you know, the next 24 hours before you receive the Paul Engel Prize. So welcome to the first one here at Prairie Thank Lights. You. Thank you. So the Failsafe is a podcast where we talk um, about creativity and failure. A question that comes before even that premise, though, I guess, is do you even believe in creative failure or do you ever frame you know what you're doing as a writer sitting down at a desk in terms of sort of failure and success or do you frame it some other way that's a good question I think you know I suppose in some ways I finished the queen of the night because out of sheer stubbornness like a a refusal to fail (laughs) um I, I was reading I was reading a, a letter from Amy Hempel recently to another writer in which she uh, she spoke of giving up on a novel after several years and claiming her life back. And I thought, God, I, I should have done that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Because <laughs> um, I just spent so long on it. Um, I, when I was here at Iowa as a student, I had lots of... I had lots of professors who had spent a decade on a book. 
So that was not by any means exotic. It almost seemed normal. Right. You know. And, um, you know, Marilyn Robinson, Frank Conroy, Jim McPherson, the first recipient of, of the Engel Prize, um, all had spent, like, much time on their books. Um, but that's not that doesn't mean that it was it was right to do if you understand me and so i remember when i remember when the fall of of uh of of the launch was coming around like uh everything had been done there's that sort of period that you have between when everything is done and before everything happens and uh and it's it's like you hear something whistling at you as it approaches through the dark <laughs> um uh and and a lot it drives a lot of people crazy. They like clean their house repeatedly or they break up with someone or they get together with someone or they they do all these things because they don't have any control over what happens next, you know. So it's very important when as your book is about to come out to know that you will go insane. <laughs> and uh and and that you should just like build that into your plan, you know. Sort of like when uh the hero lashes himself to the to the boat's steering wheel to make sure that he's not pulled away. Um, but I remember re- thinking, like, well, it could be a huge failure. Like, it could all have been for nothing. Mm-hmm. People could really hate it. And worse than that, people might not care. They might just, like, nobody might review it. Um, that's just sort of like, that is literally the deal. Um, and I think, you know, Mary Gateskill, as she often says, as she's often said, says, uh, you'll be surprised how little anyone cares that you've published your book. <laughs> um, and so I had to prepare for that. I had to, I had to include that as a possibility. Right. Like, as for me, as just as a way of feeling sane. Like, I am a, I'm well known to those who love me as a, uh, a catastrophist. I like. I think of it as being pragmatic to imagine the absolute worst thing that could happen in any situation. Um, and I'm with you on that. Yeah, <laughs> like, you got to um, get ahead of it so it yeah, doesn't exactly, happen. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so it was it was part of that. But I just I realized that like in all the things that I'd worked on, that was a thing that I had not really prepared myself for. So, you know, that was the biggest example of that probably. You know, the essay you mentioned, Girl, is an essay that I abandoned. The draft that I dug out of my files is dated to when I was a student. Uh, in, actually, I, I managed to get myself into Clark Blaze's workshop in the nonfiction program, ah. where I, I had Joanne Beard as a classmate. And uh, when I told her the essay was coming out, she was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> she, she remembered it from class. I realized that I had I had a kind of habit of abandoning what I was working on and a habit of abandoning even myself mm. that I had to think about and that's some of that's some of what is in the in the essay collection that's coming out is like an attempt to understand like where that came from so one of the questions I did have for you was if you tend to publish much of what you write and you did mention that, you know, girl had been something you abandoned, but you came back to it. Do you find that is that's part of your writing process is sort of stepping away from something for a while and returning to it? Or are are there sort of, you know, 
corpses that litter your hard drive that will, shall never see the light of day. I mean, I have all these laptops that I have been thinking that I should <laughs> that I should take to uh, a specialist so that I can have them, you know, archived so that it's not something that someone is doing after I die. Um, but also because I'm curious about what's in there. I went through a sort of black swan fugue state with writing The Queen of the Night where I think like the laptop before the one I'm using now has at least 600 files on it called Queen in some version or another. And I think any scholar who becomes interested in writing about this novel should absolutely not – they should not look at those files (laughs) um, because madness lies that way. Um, There's – you know, maybe I'll just – who knows what I'll do, um, but uh, but I do I do ha- I do save a lot, and I have a lot. I do have a lot on paper. Something that my agent is always excited about because mm-hmm. she looks forward to one day. She calls it my pension. <laughs> she will sell them, but the the papers are they're not just uh, I don't they they are talismans. They're not just drafts. They're like some like sometimes it's a a, a scrap that I wrote something on. Sometimes it's a uh, sometimes it's you know many notebooks in a box. And yeah, the laptops are not yet a talisman, but I'm realizing that they should be. That I'm sort of ignoring them in much the same way I ignored the the draft of Girl. Mm. You know that there's probably uh, at least a few fragments like that that yeah. I need to go back for some work on there to be yeah. done. Yeah. Um, so let's just return to the Queen of the Night for a moment, because I feel like there's so much there. Um, and I read a lot of interesting stuff um, in interviews you've already given about it. So uh, Edinburgh was published in 2001, and then um, Queen of the Night was published in 2016. So there was a you know 15-year pause in there. And I wonder, can you just tell us a little bit about I mean, I think I have some guesses as to the answer, but why it took so long to write. I mean, obviously, it's a 600-page historical novel, so we can imagine, you know, why that might have taken some time to write. But just kind of talk us through some of the process. Uh, part of it involves wage theft, or what, I, what I'll call wage theft, which is I had an independent publisher on the first novel who went bankrupt owing me a lot, like money that would have allowed me to write for at least a year. Yeah. You know? So that just went away. For writers, money is time. And uh, when you take money from them, you are taking time from them also. So and that that was time that I needed at that time, I think, because I was exhausted. Mm. You know, I, I had spent the years before that writing the novel, waiting tables, cater waitering, freelance writing, teaching writing. Uh, I had an apartment in Brooklyn and at a certain point, I realized that I would I would make this circuit through the day with a backpack on, uh, and then go home at night and lie down, and then get up again and put the backpack on and like <laughs> do it all over again. <laughs> and then I was basically like making all this money to return there to sleep at night, and not really like doing what I needed to be doing. So I started trying to make changes to to have have more life and more time to write. Um, but it's. I think it's very difficult when you're writing a novel and you don't have a contract for it and you don't have a lot of hope that you'll get one of those contracts. Um, or even if you do have that hope, it's hard to fit that in among all the other things. And I had chosen, 
you know, to stay away from certain kinds of traditional employment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I had a set idea of what I wanted, and I was pretty sure that I was on the path to it. So that was all like, by the time I, by the time this money vanished on me, I had been at the end of a process of like publishing them. You, so you publish the novel or the book rather, and then you promote the book. And in that case, I promoted it for like two years mm-hmm. and, and I was exhausted. And then people kept saying, what's the next book? And I was like, after the, you know, especially after my publisher had taken that money, I thought, you want me to do this again? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I, I did want to do it again. That would always been the point. And so I, I, you know, and then this, uh, these grants came, the, the NEA and the, and the Whiting. And I thought, you know, if there was ever a sign from, like, if you believe in signs from the universe, like winning two major awards like that in the same few months is is typically one one of those signs. (laughs) So I, um, so I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try this again. I had some ideas for what I would work on next, um, a book of nonfiction and uh, another novel. And I was pretty sure that those were going to be the next books. And I, uh, you know, when I signed up with the, the agent I'm, I'm still with, uh, that's what I showed her were mm. pages from those books. She was really excited about them. All that was happening. And then, and then Dave Daly of Salon, the time he was editing a special issue of the Hartford Current's Sunday magazine. And he was doing, it was like, a, a he wanted to do a all literary edition that would be like you know things that writers had in drawers and so he wrote and he said do you have anything in a drawer and I was like well yes you're like do I (laughs) let me show you these laptops I've got (laughs) in the drawer there was uh, this you know I had written about I think 30 some pages of the Queen of the Night back in the first days after finishing Edinburgh. It was this kind of experience where I woke up to the to the main character talking to me as if like that kind of friend that you have that just starts a conversation with you as if you already know what you're talking about um, from the last time that they spoke to you as if no time has passed. But I had never heard this person before. And so I remember thinking like, okay, we're... It's starting, and uh, and I made coffee, sat down, and I wrote eight pages, which was I think any writer recognizes that's a lot to certainly just sort of right. appear on your doorstep. And my agent had said, "People are going to ask what the next book is. You should have something ready to tell them about." And so I wrote up like a paragraph of what I thought the book would be about based on the eight pages. I knew that it was called "The Queen of the Night." I sent it to her, and it ended up becoming like a spoiler. Like everyone who was interested in Edinburgh would read it and become uncomfortable because of the various ways that the book is uncomfortable. And at some point, they would say, well, he has this idea for a novel about an opera singer, and maybe he could do that one instead. You know, And so it would always be like, well, we'd love to see the next book. Yeah. So that, that went on for two and a half years, you know, and I just thought, I never want to write this book, you know, so I put it away. Um, and I kind of, bit of like, well, that was really stupid that I did that to myself, you know. 
And that was what I turned back to. Did you have mixed feelings about going into it? I mean, I know one thing that drives me sort of insane as a writer is having these projects that I feel really passionate about versus projects which I think are somehow like marketable or like what I imagine some market wants. And it's like, that's like, that was like the book the market wanted. But you also kind of, seems like you had like a visitation also from the main character. So how was it? I mean, you had Edinburgh, which was, you know, received critical success, but it was maybe a kind of quieter book. And then to move into this book that, you know, you have a feeling that like editors are really going to want it. What was it like to start writing that book? Did you feel kind of like bolstered and energized coming off of your first book or how was it approaching it? Edinburgh had this kind of funny history where it was it was widely reviewed, but because of the indie press that went bankrupt, they did not I used to joke that their distribution was putting the books on the back of a mule and sending it into the Delaware River. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it was but even when it was widely available through Picador, it was still, I think, like Picador did a great job relaunching it, and I was I was very grateful. But I think um, it became this book that had sort of made a reputation for me without also being like uh, something that sold very well. And I, you know, and I shouldn't. All kidding aside, like I am for all the bitterness about what happened with the money, I am very grateful to that professor for taking a chance on the novel because everything that happened was was a result of mm-hmm. of them taking that chance when literally nobody else would. And the paperback edition of Edinburgh came about because, because of that. You know, like their ability to get the review attention, even if they couldn't get books to stores, was something that that got the attention of the presses that ended up bidding on it for the paperback. Mm-hmm. So, it's this sort of it becomes this thing that you're always weighing, I guess, right? right? Like, I think you know when I went back to the Queen of the Night, I I went up and down these kinds of manic cycles of like. This is a great idea. This is the worst idea. This is a great idea. And, you know, I would tell people like, like one minute it's a ballet, the next minute it's a clog dance. You know, um, no offense to anyone who likes either <laughs> art form, <laughs> um, uh, but it just like, as in like my perception of it kept shifting based on like my progress on it and my valuation of it also. You know, so um, it was a really, I, I felt like I was. I kept going back and forth between feeling like I was making a terrible mistake and also that it was the the thing that I should be doing. You know, a lot of it is about being willing to be the writer who will write it. That it was ego that I was essentially struggling with more than material in many ways. Um, That I had this idea, like, that I was somehow, by working on this book about a white woman in the past who... I had no direct connection to, you know, other than the fact that she showed up in my head and started talking to me, <laughs> um, that I, uh, that I was somehow betraying my own principles as, you know, an activist and a writer and so on. Um, so before there was even a question like, was this marketable or was this not? There was just like a kind of ideological struggle that I was having with myself and my idea of myself, you know? And then when people started saying like, you know, wow, that's going to be like that's going to be a bestseller. I would I would say, well, so you think, <laughs> you know, which is why the this is a little bit of like a 
cosmic joke <laughs> way. Um, well, but, what what do you think made you go into it despite those reservations? I mean, was it just I was, was so the- sick of myself, <laughs> like, so sick of thinking about myself, so think of you know that's. Sorry, just, what's the rest of your no, question? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, just it was it was just like a focus on the work, like as a way of escaping from the self. Like I'm just going to yeah. do this despite all this other garbage that's sort of like going on in my head and. And was that was the work itself sort of a refuge from thinking about the work when it was at its best? Yeah. Sure, you know I, I think at times the scale of what I didn't know that I needed to know to write the book overwhelmed me, and I thought, I don't do I want to learn French? Is that what you really want to do? You know. Um, uh, but then I also then there were things like, well, I guess I have to research this in Paris. You know, like. <laughs> and so, and so oh man, to I have to go to Paris. Right, yeah. that starts to change things. But yeah. then, you know, also Paris is like a there's like a whole American publishing industry around selling this kind of idea of Paris to Americans as well. And I thought, am I am I participating in that? And then I was sort of recoil in, in disgust at the possibility that I had even succumbed to such a thing. <laughs> so it was really, I mean, it was really like ego struggles again. Yeah. Like it wasn't really about. All that stuff was not really about this. It was ignoring the fact that I did actually have a sincere and direct connection to the material. So it was this kind of way in which the person I was was at war with the writer that I was. I would love to talk a little bit about the research because such a huge amount of research went into this book. Um, I'm interested in your process of integrating that you know into your writing um i am often when i start researching something it's like a red flag for me that like the project is just never going to happen because i'm just distracting myself when i should be writing so how did you kind of i'm I, i'm so curious to know how you took all of that and then went into that's very kind of like analytical to a certain point and like Cerebral and went into a creative space and kind of turned that into something that was art then? I think it's more, you know, you have this vision in your head and you're chasing after it, and then you think, how real is that? How much could that be true? As I, as I was listening to you and thinking of like how I would describe this, I was thinking of that famous moment in Star Wars where um, R2D2 projects this hologram of Leia. She's like, talking and you know you can barely make out what she's saying and it it was a lot like that like there's this image of this woman trying to say something to me and I was like what are you saying (laughs) what like what could that possibly mean and so a lot of the research was about like trying to get to a place where I understood what these images were coming from you know so like the Comtesse Castiglione who like is a big part of the novel I found her after I'd already written pages with her in it without knowing that she was her. Mm. So I, I had like, I'd written these pages, this glamorous woman with reddish hair was who, you know, came backstage to talk to Liliette and uh, the scene didn't make the not the final version of the novel, but like, but I remember thinking like, well, who would this person be? And so I picked up a, a book 
that was like, I think it was called something like the Women of the Second Empire. And I just started paging through it to see if there was anyone. And then I, and then I got to her page. And in the scene, the woman had identified herself as, as a, a, a lover of Emperor Napoleon III. And, and that's kind of what she's most famous for in France. And I thought, good God, this is, that's her, you know. And then I Googled her and saw the, like, astonishing number of photographs. Um, and and then once I saw the the eyes in the photographs, I, I was obsessed and I knew that uh, I had found, I had sort of, like, broken through the wall in some way to the, um, closer to the, the thing that had been calling to me. It almost sounds like like dream interpretation, you know, where you have these images and you don't know what they mean and then you kind of project meaning onto them and they become resonant and real in a way they weren't before. Um, I think there's a certain amount of that. I think that, you know, the I mean, some great things to do with your research are so that it's not so that this doesn't sound too. <laughs> fantastical um let me just describe lots of things that have no advice um uh there was a methodology that was recommended to me by my friend sabina murray uh who uh, i think of as being like a a real master of this kind of literary historical fiction mm-hmm. um where she said do your research read it at night before you go to bed wake up and write about it and that was really good advice. She's like, you need to dream on it. Yeah. It has to like go, go pass through the pass through the night with you, and then you'll be able to write about it in the way that you should write about it. And I think that was incredibly helpful. Yeah. So it's not like you're sitting down and you have like facts written down on a piece of paper, right, and, you're and then you're like this looking thing, at right. them and going you're like over yeah. to the writing. I yeah. Think, I think that's when that that's when you have fiction that that where you suddenly feel like the author is dropping an essay on you or part of an essay or, or just a kind of undigested chunk of, of their research. And you think, you know, where's this coming from? Or the, or the worst is, is what I think of as like, um, you know, there's, I, I love Gore Vidal's work, but his, his novels about presidents, um, are not, they're not my favorite of the things that he wrote. Um, and there's a kind of like there was one of them, and some of like I'm sure some of them have tremendous qualities, and I'm sure after this podcast airs, someone will confront me with them. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but there was this there's one in particular that I I bought. I think it's I think it's the title is 1867. It just had this kind of labored. The narrator had this labored way of talking that like that was just not the way anyone at that time would write about their own lives. And so all these little details where you thought, oh, yes, he has done that research. That, <laughs> that is the name of that coin and what it looks like. I mean, how much do you really look at your money? You know? Right, exactly. Like most of us, especially, I mean, especially now, but like it's very rare when you're like staring at a coin <laughs> and just describing it in detail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just, just really it's, meditating on the coin. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so it's the, it's buttons and coins is what I call that technique of. Right. Cause there are all these buttons in the, in the novel also like, 
Um, that. <laughs> were there um, any, during this time when you were writing The Queen of the Night, were there any um, historical novels that you really turned to and admired and kind of drew from when you were looking at your methodology and how you would kind of... Um, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, in some ways I wrote, I was incredibly naive. I thought that it was a sign of my seriousness that I was going to be writing historical fiction. And I didn't realize the low regard historical fiction is typically held in um, by critics and certain readers. Um, and I, I wrote about that for The New Republic, and it's a, a, it's a, a sort of a funny predicament. But I had always thought very well of historical fiction because I had there were novels that I loved greatly starting with like Mary Renault's uh Alexander the Great trilogy and um uh you know Penelope Fitzgerald's historical fiction and uh Margaret Atwood also mm -hmm. alias Grace um uh so there there were lots of lots of novels that I had thought oh this is this is amazing. This is something that I want to do, you know. So it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't until I was well underway that somebody thought, like, somebody said to me, like, "God, I really didn't have you pegged for like historical fiction," you know. And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> am I doing something in bad taste?" Um, <laughs> and it turned out that I was, you know. Yeah, I I had read that piece you wrote too about historical fiction. I was like, I didn't I didn't know it was in bad taste at all. Um, yeah. Book clubs love historical fiction. They sell great. Yes, they do. Yeah. I think it's I think it's now in a I think it's held in a higher regard than it used to be. And mm -hmm. certainly um, you know, uh Hilary Mantel has has done a great deal to yeah. to change that, uh to sort of force the literary establishment to deal with that. And I think there were a number of Gumberto Echo's whole career, for example, was partly about changing that relationship to it even as he also sold a lot of books yeah. you know so as you were writing the queen of the night you also were publishing shorter pieces memoirs stories essays was it was that a nice sort of respite within this longer project to have these pieces sort of going out to the world did that sort of keep you going keep you involved in this large make you feel like you are part of this larger community or were those two things not really related creatively for you at a certain point i realized that i self-identified as a novelist but that so much time had passed since my first novel had been published that most people knew me as an essayist <laughs> and so then i had a kind of reckoning with that you know and that was the first time that i asked my agent about should I publish an essay collection? And she said, you have to finish your novel. You know? um, uh, <laughs> oh, agents. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and sure enough, like as soon as the novel was done, she, she actually had her assistant round up all these essays of mine from the internet. And then she sent it to me and said, here's your collection. <laughs> now you tell me what's missing. You know? And that was, I suppose, her, her way of saying like, Good job. Now, you, now we can move on to the, to the next thing. She's um, she's a bit of a taskmaster that way, and I think it, you know she's right. I had I had sold a novel. I needed to turn it in. It was like that's not a ridiculous thing to say to a writer. You know, did it help? Did it hurt? I think probably both. Mm. You know, some of them took me longer to write than others. Um, certainly, 
like when I sat down and looked at them all, I had written over 60, written and published over 60 essays. Wow. The collection that's coming out is is just like 15 of those, 16 of those. And some of them have never been published. So I could I could probably do like a, a, a bigger book of essays shortly after if I wanted to flood the market. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but we'll see what happens. It's a it's a different part of the brain, you know, to write nonfiction. Right. Uh, it's a different moral task. It's a different set of skills. And there's and there is a way in which when the when the novel is certain points where the novel is underway, where there's nothing else you can write, and there's also nothing else you could even read, where your brain is 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 just like no, only me, only this novel. You know? <laughs> And that's a very strange place to be in, and that can feel like a kind of prison mm. that you want to escape from into, say, writing an essay right. when the chance arrives and, and the pressure lets up even a little. Yeah. So it's, I think probably there was a fair amount of that, but they these essays as they appeared were like little jailbreaks, you know? So... People we're hoping will listen to this podcast, and some of them are maybe, you know, in year five of their novel. And as a, you know, as opposed to writing a short story that might take months. Uh, and so I was wondering um, if you, I was thinking, you know, Alexander is sort of a marathoner. And then I'm like, no, he ran like 10 marathons in a row <laughs> writing The Queen of the Night. And how was your sort of training or your approach to that different than shorter projects? Like the actual like nuts and bolts of getting through that. I mean, I think there's like a lot of aspects to it, like staying sane, like um, <laughs> sitting down at a desk every day in the face of great despair. You know, like I'm interested in knowing like how you framed thinking about like such a long project like sort of the mental tricks you use to keep going because I think that's like a lot of the battle you know is just not stopping um, and so do you have anything you could share with us about how to not stop writing your novel <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure I think that you know the biggest tool that helped me was to create a journal specifically devoted to the tasks of writing the novel and to create an entry when I was done for the day. didn't have to be even in complete sentences. It could just be fragments, epithets, insults, you know, uh, questions that I had. Um, I made sure to write down any of the, if I looked at any old uh, computer files, I wrote the names of those files um, so that I could go back in case I needed to. Uh, and I kept it like a blog, but like a private blog that was just for me. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that I noticed about Microsoft Word early on was that uh, you, but when you opened the, the document again, you were always at the beginning. And so in the early days of, of say, like, of working on my first novel, Edinburgh, um, I, I remember like ruining the first 35 pages one summer just by like 
always revising those pa- those pages over and over again every time before I would let myself go on to the rest of the book, and that was just uh, horrible, you know. Because you open it, and there it is. There it is, You yeah. have to scroll right. through it, yeah. 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 Um, and I, I remember reading some essay by Joan Didion where she said that that's how she did it, and, you know, I thought the world of her, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll do that too, and that was that was not good. Because I think that, you know, the you have to protect – the writing does reach a certain point place where you should leave it alone and move on yeah. to the next part of the writing and uh, and not go back and and guess again and again and again because it is for me at least it's about guessing and I think the the biggest illusion that I had to conquer with the computer right away was the way in which the document just looked so finished as soon as I typed something on it it looked like a book you know and uh, and my mistakes would seem correct, but they were only familiar. I needed to escape the trap of that. So I started leaving the computer asleep, reopening it, but then that seemed to create its own chaos with the document. And the easiest way to do it was to just create this journal and to say where I had left off work and then to read that the next morning before I began work and return to that place and continue again from there. And that seemed to conquer all of that chaos. You know, now we have all these other programs that we can use. I hear, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, I, for example, I I can't make any sense of Scrivener, but I think this the journal as a place to privately uh, despair, complain, praise also when when I felt like praising myself, but just have that whole uh, conversation apart. Yeah, uh, was was really helpful. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, the self, it's like you remember that you have this, you have this little, um, this little memory of like, oh yes, I was a writer, I did my writing, I was a writer, I returned to that voice and I shall go back and be a writer again. Right. Oh, but the, the blog style, I should say, was, uh, to the journal, Yeah, was that I, so every, the newest entry was always at the top of the document. And not at the bottom. Right. And so that way, when I opened the journal again, I was always at the newest entry. And I wasn't looking back across all the entries before. And that was part of also of like having the record in case I wanted to look at it, but always just beginning with what I had done the the day previous. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. It's almost like I... I forget that I've written or that I've done something good and to go back to a former self that's like, hey, this is what you did. That could be, I would like to visit that self and they can kind of get you back into the writing. I'm wondering about your writing these days. I, I see you on the Twitter sometimes. I follow you on the Twitter. <laughs> um, I see that you read the news and you tweet about the news. <laughs> You are involved in, by it. in the larger yeah. political drama currently unfolding. Um, I see other writers tweet about the news and say things like, might as well, you know, write whatever you want. Work on your dream project because of, you know, nuclear holocaust and everything. So <laughs> I'm just wondering. I'm wondering in all this chaos I feel like it's very chaotic right now. And how are you being a writer these days? Um, does that affect 
you being a writer uh, in any way? Like, like how are those two things sort of in conversation these days? I think the uh, I'm I'm having a lot of I'm going through a period of questioning um, everything from like how I share things on social media, you know, to whether I should even be on it, to, um, uh, you know, I think the the most valuable thing that I did in the immediate aftermath of what I call the election, (laughs) (laughs) as if it's the only one um, that will ever have happened. Um, Uh... The first thing I did was uh, I I created a writers group with some other writer friends and and that has been incredibly sane making actually to get together have like a fantastic potluck. Luckily, everybody's if they're not a good cook, they know where to shop. <laughs> right. At least <laughs> um, they have they have good taste. Uh, you know, some of us have. Some of us have beautiful balconies to sit on when the weather's nice, you know. Um, so that that was incredibly helpful. I think that um, also just going out to literary events, readings, uh, seeing seeing each other, listening to each other's work, was a way of like being away from the from that noise, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the violence of it. Because it is, I think there's a there is a kind of planned violence to it. Like, you know, the first hundred days of of this presidency were specifically designed to traumatize people. Mm-hmm. It was an attempt to alienate a majority that had not been allowed to win the election, you know. And, uh, and so that was, that was what was happening. And so you had to think through it. And I think people are still reeling from it and I think they have been recalculating the ways in which they accomplish those those ends you know um and it's uh it's awful yeah so the you know the, I, I I just sent an email to Ayanna Mathis for example who uh is a friend and um with thinking that she might be here this weekend and she wrote back she's like no I'm I'm you know, I'm, I'm at my house upstate, and I realized that as she wrote to me that she had not been, not been paying attention to the news at all. I thought, how great it would be to be yeah. here. You know? yeah. like, but I mean, she, I'm sure she reads newspapers, but I know she's not on Twitter. I absolutely know she isn't, and that she has no secret Twitter account, <laughs> and, and like no no interest in being on it. And and in a way, like that's a, a way of being protected from one of what has become like the major ways in which this. Uh, presidency works to interfere with us, you know, is with these tweets the president does. So I'm thinking about that a lot. I think the I've been I I turned out that I was watching a lot of television and a lot of film, and and, and uh, I have have this project that my husband Dustin and I have been working on for some time. We're adapting Barry Worth's biography of Newton Arvin, the Scarlet Professor. So turning back to that has also been like a nice. It's it allows me to use some of my historical fiction muscles, mm-hmm. but it's also like for me a return to writing gay fiction, explicitly gay fiction. Uh, you know, opera novels, I guess, are technically gay fiction, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's also and it's political fiction too. It's a and it's interesting to see how they handled a very difficult 
you know, Newton Arvin and his friends handled a very difficult era when things were in, in many ways much worse. And to think about how, like, if there's any wisdom in that mm. to bring to audiences, you know, so that's, that's helpful too. Yeah. Um, I think we have a little bit of time for some questions from folks here. Would love to hear anything failure or success related. Any questions for Alexander? I was I was reading how you, um, you're you're like some information, basic information about you, but and you said you were born you were born in Rhode Island, even though you attended the University of Iowa, and you spent some time in Korea. Like, what was that? Was it during like the in the army or what was? I? Oh no, uh, I was. I, uh, uh, sorry, sorry. I that oh, was no, it's okay. Silly it's question. A, it's not a silly question. Um, I was I was born in Rhode Island, and uh, and my parents were. My father was a poor graduate student, and my mother was. She had been a home ec teacher, but at the time, women weren't allowed to work while they were pregnant. Um, visibly, like if you were visibly, sorry, not uh, as a teacher. If you were visibly pregnant as a teacher, you were let go. Um, and so she had lost her job, and that's terrible. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so it was. I was like a. I was basically an unplanned child in a kind of financial crisis, also. Um, as a result, so they moved to Korea in with my father's family there, and that, and that's where I spent the first three years of my childhood. I just want to say how intrigued I am with the journal, and I was wondering if that was something that you came up with on your own, or if uh, someone passed on that piece of wisdom to you. I uh, I did make it up <laughs> on my own. I at the time I had been blogging for a few years, and at the time blogging was considered something that literary writers shouldn't do. People kind of would make fun of me for it or you know um i remember being at mcdowell in 2005 and these friends of mine were like like trying to delete my blog (laughs) (laughs) and chanting delete your blog delete your blog delete your blog uh and so i sort of i guess i was kind of wanting to prove that that it would even be useful and uh when i came up with the system that i came up with but i'd also been reading uh janet frame and her autobiography after seeing Angel at My Table, Jane Campion's amazing film about it. And and she had very specific methods that she used for her for the writing of her novels. And I was trying to use some of those. And you know, one of them was creating a list of your characters that you looked at and that you and that you had someplace where you would always look at while you were writing. And also a list of the places of the novel as well. So that Anytime you were stuck, you could look up at the places and the characters and you would start thinking about new situations. And so it sort of began like that and then it and then it sort of took off from there. It seems like it really keeps you in the space of writing because every time you're back at your desk, you pick right back up again. Whereas that is one of my biggest struggles is if I walk away for a few days, that first hour sitting back down, it feels just like I really, you know, the wheels are slow to turn. So I think reading some of that, um, you know, I was just right here would be a great help in in picking back up and jumping right back in it. It's also good to, uh, to keep a fragment that you feel is some of the best writing of the manuscript uh, and that has the tone that you want to maintain in the manuscript that's someplace that you can also look at it so that that can also help help you when you are stuck and and wandering 
think we need to mine Alex for more lists of <laughs> I tools. Know. There's a lot of knowledge here. Especially as I age, I'm like, what was I doing again? <laughs> like, why am I writing this? Right. It was right there. <laughs> Rachel's so going senile. Yeah, a little. Now, any other questions? Oh, yeah. Great. Thanks for coming and reading to us today. It's been really uh, informational and entertaining. Um, so a 576-page novel at the end can imagine all the puzzle pieces you went through. Did you find yourself in major rewrites where you just had to go, oh, shit, I've got to go from here to there? Oh, I mean, uh, quite regularly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, I think there were a few doomed enterprises. Um, there was the manuscript with three beginnings. Um, there was... Uh, there was the attempt at making it a completely chronological tale, retelling of the tale, which was a terrible boondoggle because the whole thing just sort of like slumped in the middle and um, and then began, uh, became, by the time you were moving towards the climax, it was like, who could get up that hill? <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, so yeah, there were a number of those uh, kinds of moments. And I think I often, I often felt... Like, my brain wasn't big enough to do the thing that I wanted to do. Mm. And that was that was painful at times. That's so heartening, though, that you still did it, even though you're like, I can't, I can't do this. Yeah, it's great to hear. I guess a follow-up to that when just made me think of, so 15 years and there's an editor, one editor this whole time? No, sort three. Of, okay. So Two they... of them lost their jobs <laughs> during that period. Well, that's probably But somehow the book wasn't canceled, which is its own sort of miracle, and I suppose a testament to my agent's ruthlessness and agility. So are they checking in on you? For these re- like the whole chronological rewrite makes me think, like, is someone there with you saying, let's try this? Or are you just doing it on your own, and then they check in on you, and it's a you're mix. in a dark apartment? It was a mix. I think, you know, <laughs> some of the apartments had a lot of light, um, but we're still dark in, inside. Um, you know, the the problem with my drafts is that before, before they are, or at least with the Queen of the Night, the problem with the Queen of the Night's draft was that before it was a thing that I could just sort of reasonably show someone and say, like, here's some progress. What do you think? You know, um, it, it just looked like a, a kind of crazy pastiche of of things or or like icebergs of events with like unfinished threads that connected them and and so there was not really a way to show anyone without them thinking like well he's gone crazy and we should probably stop this um <laughs> so i would t- i would have conversations with with these editors quite frequently but not always with pages and i think it's it's okay to protect yourself if that's the kind of writer you are like one of the other methods that i used was anytime that i would cut a large number of pages, I would keep that in a separate file that I would call a chop file. So that was called Chop Queen. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and I, I remember at a certain point realizing that Chop Queen was like 375 pages long. And the thing that I was calling the novel was like 75 pages long. And then I, and then I was like, Girl, what are you doing? <laughs> like, we love Chop Queen. Um, I know Chop Queen is a sequel. <laughs> Come on. So I, uh, I, I remember sort of printing it out, you know, and sitting down with it, and, be, 
and realizing that like there were like I had started the novel several times and I would write you know about 90 pages and then I'd be like this isn't this is a mistake this isn't it at all and start over and and that all of these starts were actually her different lives and that what I had to do was to find a way for all of them to come together and that that it sort of like in a sense like putting it away resembled the psychological process for her of compartmentalizing and being like I'm not that person anymore I don't live there anymore I don't have that in my life anymore and uh and that was a intense realization did you take any big breaks from it during that stretch of time or were you just consi- pretty consistently working on it I did take a I took a like a real vacation I ended up writing about that for the New York Times this summer uh ironically <laughs> <laughs> um because at the time the the point of the vacation was that I wasn't going to write about this vacation I was just going to have it right you know? um uh and I wasn't going to write on it and I was just going to And how long was that? That was 10 days. Okay. So you put it down for 10 days. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was thinking, you know, three months. Okay. Uh, There was a a period when it seemed like uh, I was going to be following my first editor to his new house. Uh, And so I did actually, I sort of stopped working on it because I just didn't feel like I knew. I remember thinking like, well, maybe... Maybe you just shouldn't write it. Maybe like maybe this won't work. Maybe you'll be free. Maybe you don't have to write it anymore. You know, uh, these kinds of like serious questions that were going through my head. Because at that point, that was two thousand and eight. It had been, it had been you know three or four years, and that was the certainly Amy Hempel felt like that was enough time <laughs> to spend <laughs> right. on something before giving up. At that point, you know, I I just. Uh, that was a that was a period of about three months when I stopped working on it, and no, that was it. Yeah, really. Wow. All right. Well, we've come to the close of your first challenge of the next twenty four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I think you would be happy to sign some maybe oh, some books if yes. people have them. So, thank you all for coming, and congratulations again to Alexander Chi tomorrow night. Thank you so much. Prize. Thanks so much. Thank you. listening and please subscribe to us on itunes or soundcloud we have more great episodes coming up including national book award finalist carmen maria machado and winner of the colorado prize for poetry lauren haldeman this episode was edited and produced by yours truly with production support by andrea wilson and mark palanzak as ever the failsafe is a joint effort of draft the journal of process in the iowa writers house special thanks to the iowa arts council I'm Rachel Yoder. Thanks for listening.